Good to see you all here this morning, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Somebody, a lot of people have given me a hard time for not wearing green. I apologize publicly for that. Um, We're going to take a a little bit of time this morning. We're working through this series, and hopefully you've been blessed by it. We're working through this series through the book of Hosea, and uh, uh, we've spent some time in that. Just so you know, we're wrapping that up this morning, and then next week we're starting in the book of Ruth. So really our whole New Year so far has been just Old Testament. We uh, spent a long time in the book of Acts, and so we thought we'd kind of uh, counterbalance that with a little bit of OT, and so hopefully you've been encouraged by that. We're in chapter 12 here this morning, and what I've learned is not many uh, pastors go into this territory. It's usually chapters 1 through 3, so we're kind of in chapters uh, or not often visited. Uh, But while you're turning there, I was thinking about it as we're talking about this morning. One of the things as a communicator that you're, it's important to understand is different learning, kind of, if you'd say different kind of, uh, different kind of learning styles with different audiences. I don't know if you've ever seen some of these descriptors here. I don't know what you fall into. The first learning style often with people is auditory. Auditory is the idea, idea that you hear something, and based on what you hear, you're able to absorb that truth. This person so often prefers things being read out loud. This person, when I was reading in the description of it, this person is more prone to talk to themselves. So if that's a, a deal with you, maybe you're an auditory uh, lear- learner, or maybe just a little crazy. Uh, so other possibility is tactile learner. Tactile learner, what would you say, how would you describe a tactile learner? What's important for them to do? Touch and feel, like they like to grab things and hold it and see for themselves. That's a, another learning style. It's kind of hard to figure out how to implement that here at church. We're still uh, working on that, uh, but that's an uh, important one. Probably the most common, though, in the list of learning styles is this next one, is the, is the visual learner. How many of you would describe yourself as a visual learner? Somebody that learns best through story or through picture, through seeing things. After you get a chance, then you're like, oh, that's how I'm able to take it in. And if you think about it, I would suggest that Scripture is so often positioned for that type of learning. Think about how often in Scripture we see stories, poems, personal letters, parables, biographies, all these different things to reveal to us who, for, to reveal who God is and what He's called us to. That's not the. That's definitely the case in the book of Hosea. You think about Hosea; it's been really just one big picture, one picture that God painted for us of a love relationship. And he has two physical characters, uh, one by the name of Hosea, who represents him and his unending perfect love for us. And the other was the picture of Gomer, his wife, and her bent towards infidelity. It's a picture, unfortunately, so often of us and how easily we wander. So he uses these two pictures so far. And really, as you step away and see the big picture of Hosea, you start to realize that this is really the story of mankind. Whether you recognize this or not, whether you realize this or not, we're all a part of one massive love story. We're all part of one massive love story. Love story between creator God and his creation. Between creator God and his creation, you're a part of that story. 
Well, this morning in these last couple chapters, and we're going to not go specifically verse by verse like we typically do, but we're going to get a little bit more of an overview of these last couple chapters. And they give two pictures that I would suggest related to relationship. First picture is the picture of a severed relationship where it's broken and damaged and in desperate need of help. And the second picture that is going to be painted in the text this morning is a picture of a restored relationship, one that is a, 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 attractive, that's filled with beauty and a future. And these two pictures are painted with one choice in between them, determining which we will experience in this lifetime. I'm excited to go through this with you. Let me pray before we do. Lord Jesus, we invite you this morning, even as Adrian prayed, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at, that we'd be free of distractions, that you'd speak through your word this morning. I love so much that you're so committed to engaging with us, that you use pictures that help resonate with us. I ask that that would happen here this morning, that you'd come, that you'd enter into this room, that your Holy Spirit would be present and active and meeting us even in these moments. We pray this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So chapter 12, uh, I would suggest, uh, kind of because uh, man has put in place these different chapter separations, actually the thought begins at the end of chapter 11. So if you could glance back to just verse 12 of chapter 11, that's where we're going to start here this morning. It says this, Ephraim, which pictures the northern kingdom. Remember we talked about this, Israel is the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. So he's talking to the northern kingdom says this, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. We'll pause there for a moment. This picture that he's first confronting them with is the first thing that I would suggest is a part so often of a severed relationship is it's marked with lies, marked with lies. Even think about that from a human perspective. That's so often the case is there's usually some kind of a root lie that's caused the separation. In this case, the separation that's there, the root lie is the lie of sin. Like how is sin a lie? If you think at it, every single, every single sin across the landscape has this same basis of lie. The lie is this, that I know better than God. God might say that this is the best parameter, this is the best for me, but the lie of sin says, no, I think it's okay to go over here. It's going to work out. It's the age-old delusion that we know better than God. He's confronting them for this. And if you think about it, he sees right through their facade. So, so often, so many times we think that we're able to sneak something by. I don't know if those of you that are parents in the room can kind of reflect back on your growing up years and you think to yourself, because of during my high school years of rebellion, I'm better able to see through when my kids try to be sneak something past me. Anybody have that? Or just like, they're not getting anything past me because I've been there, done that. And I was thinking about that. I was like, well, that's uh, helped me a lot of times with seeing through the kids. That, that's not how our God works though. The reason he's able to see through our lies is because what? Because he's perfect and holy. So all of a sudden, a lie is so amplified and he's able to identify it. He calls them out on it. He takes a second though in the second part of that verse, which is interesting, but he says, but Judah, which is the Southern kingdom, still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. 
kind of a cool thing where he's pointing out to some degree they're still uh, committed. In verse 1 of chapter 12, though, he continues with his complaint about the northern kingdom. He says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. He's calling them out. I love that statement that he says, this indictment against them. They feed on the wind. Where have we heard that elsewhere in scripture? Remember Solomon's conclusion after he'd sampled and tried everything that this world offers? What did he say? He said, it's like a chasing after the wind, seeing the futility and all of the things that this world promises to satisfy with is when he's confronting them. He's like, oh, you guys, you're lying and you're living this futile existence where you're chasing all these things that are like chasing after the wind. Second part of verse two says this, which is really interesting to think about this for a moment. It says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. Remember, that was, the, that was the group that he just complimented a minute ago. It says, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Like, wait a second. I thought he was just complimenting them for their, their, their staying with him and their faithfulness. It's interesting because we're seeing here that our God, we have a God that's kind of a, a picture. Best way to picture it is somebody that doesn't look past any past mistakes. You're like, oh, that's, that's no fun. I, I'm like, I, I know, but that's the picture that we have. I don't know if you've had anybody in your life that you're like, it doesn't matter what I do. I can never make them happy. Maybe you're sitting next to that person right now. Don't look at them if you are. Uh, but here, here's the, the idea. The idea of that, that person is it's like, man, it doesn't matter how hard I try, how many things I do, I can never meet their demands. Here's a thing for you guys to talk about over lunch that's biblical, but not uh, very popular as a view of God, is that you can't ever do enough to please God. Like, what do you mean, Pastor Scott? What do you mean you can't? That, it's, it's biblical. I, I, Isaiah talks about this exact same truth. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our good works are like what? Filthy rags before God. We're not going to unpack what the filthy rags are, but it's pretty gross, even in that descriptor there, saying that all of our human effort never appeases a perfect God, because exactly that. He's a perfect God. When Adrian and I first moved here from uh, Chicago, I remember arriving on this campus and noticing like in the first like half an hour, I'm like, man, there's a pretty distinct smell here at ABF. Like they're like the, the, the goats are a real deal here. And I remember, I, I remember a little bit of panic. I remember uh, when I was first here, I was like, I was like, hon, we're going to have to do something about the goats. Like they're, it's really bad. You get like a hot day in, uh, in Old Agora and it's just like intoxicating. But here's what's happened over the years. Kind of get used to it. Kind of get, anybody else have that same thing? At, at first you're just like, man, this place is rotten. And then after a while you're kind of like, yeah kind of like it. Don't mind it so much. It kind of reminds me of the great outdoors, you know, the farming era, as if any of us farmed. But uh, here's here's the same picture as I would suggest with sin, is we get accustomed to our own stench. We get accustomed to our own stench. We don't recognize that, that we have a God that's perfect, and he sees past all of us, and he's like, man, I haven't gotten used to that one bit. 
So therefore, look at his words that we just looked at. He says, according to his ways, he will repay him according to his deeds. That's life outside of relationship with God. In a severed relationship with God, we're on the receiving end, the outcome of our deeds. That's the scenario that we're in. We're like, I don't really like that idea. So he's confronting the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Now in verses 7 through 8 of chapter uh, 12, he's confronting the northern kingdom again. He's saying they're guilty of shady business practices. They love to oppress. They depend on their own wealth and yet claim innocence in all of it. Verse 14, he says the same thing to the northern kingdom. He said to the southern kingdom, Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Do you see the trend there? Southern kingdom, repay you for your deeds. Northern kingdom, we're going to repay you for your deeds. Basically, the penalty is nonetheless, both even ones that have glimpses of faithfulness, apart from the rescuing work of Jesus Christ, we're all on the trajectory of receiving payment for our actions, and his payment is fairly drastic, one might say. I was reading a little bit this last week in my study about, this, about the city of Singapore. Singapore is known for one thing. They're known for being extremely strict on their laws. Have you guys ever read anything about them? Like very, I mean, you can still in Singapore, you can receive like present day, you can be caned for like small theft. You can be like the, they had until recently, they had even a law against chewing gum in Singapore. I mean, they take their rules really seriously. It wouldn't take much to land in prison in Singapore. So remember that if you're visiting there, but here's the, the reason I bring that up. Where on the earth do you think has the lowest crime rate of anywhere? I've kind of set you up for that. Yes, uh, Singapore has that because you recognize, wait a second, there's accountability here. We have to answer to someone. There's, There's potential consequence to our action And similarly, for us before a perfect God, we might not like this reality, and so often pastors ignore it, but his penalty is drastic. His penalty is high. Chapter 13, we move into, it says in verse 8, it says, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion. As a wild beast would rip them open, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. He's pointing this out, that the outcome of our rejection is our deeds demand a response, and he is not going to be hesitant to bring that response. You guys are like, oh, glad I came to church this morning. Like, aren't you guys, uh, there's other parts we're going to get to. But here's the thing. A lot of times the person will come to this conclusion. Well, maybe, okay, I've got this, this bad thing going. He's, he has this against me. Maybe over time, some people that are good with kind of managing relationships, maybe over time, I can get him to reconsider and think differently about me. Here's the part that I'd say to that person. Verse 12 of chapter 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept 
in a store. His sin is kept in a store. This is reiterated in Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We might not realize this, but we don't have a God that forgets. We don't have a God that forgets. He's one that's building a seamless case against us apart from Jesus Christ. And his wrath is all it says. It's being built up and added in a storehouse. You're like, oh, that, that doesn't sound very good. So that's one picture. That's one picture that he's painting for us to make sure is visually perfectly clear in the mind of the audience. This is what a severed relationship with God looks like. You guys ready for a different picture? Please give me a different picture. Chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 4. We'll go back to verse 1 in a moment. Verse 4 paints this picture of what a restored relationship looks like. It says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answered and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Sounds like a complete different conversation, doesn't it? Look at that description. It says, I will heal their apostasy. By definition, apostasy means departure, revolt, or rebellion. Departure, revolt, or rebellion. He's saying, I'm going I'm to wipe that clean. I'm going to heal them from their choice to reject and run from me. He describes that. And he describes this, this picture, though. He says, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. You see, the reason it's turned from them is because all of a sudden the consequence of their, of their sin, of the, the separation of their, their choices, he's saying, I've dealt with their apostasy. I've taken care of that. And once that's taken care of, being the object of God's love, I will love them freely. Being the object of God's affection is a, is a mind-boggling thing. So often my kids will tease because we'll be going on driving somewhere and they'll come up with the craziest conversations. One that's actually happened a couple of times is this conversation. Maybe your kids have had it too if you have children. They've had this conversation. They've said, what would it be like to be the best friends with Bill Gates? And you're like, uh, I don't know. How, how about Jeff Bezos? That's maybe more relevant today. What would it be like to be the best friend and have access to all of his money, what would that be like? And I'm like, uh, I don't know if his best friends have all full access, but they don't want logic. And so I'm like, maybe a spouse where they have, but anyway, the corrections uh, nonetheless. Here, here's the, the, the point. So often that's our mentality of like, man, what if I could be the object of all that this world has to offer? My question for us, wouldn't you rather be the object of the affection of the creator God, the one that speaks things 
into existence. The one that holds the universe in the palm of his hands. The one that knows you intimately and knows how to best meet your needs. So often we associate, because he goes into the next section there describing all of the all of the blessings that he's going to pour out. So often we associate blessings with just the financial resources. But really on the, on the, on the uh, spectrum of blessings, when you're thinking through the different possible blessings, would, resource, would, would money even make the list? Think about it for a moment. Would money even make the list? Would, would that bump out good health? Would, would, would that bump out, out healthy relationships? How many of us would, would trade in all of our resources for children that grow up and follow the Lord fully with their, with their, with their hearts and minds? Is that even on the radar wealth? What, what about a, a job that's fulfilling or meaningful, relate, all of these different things? That's what he's offering. He says, as the object of his affection, you're going to flourish greatly. He says, I'll be like the dew. Israel's the dry and dying land, but he like, goes into all these lists. He's like, you're going to blossom like the lily. You're going to have roots like the trees of Lebanon, blue, beauty like the olive, which is a picture of peace and prosperity in that nation. Fragrance like Lebanon, flourish like grain, blossom like the vine, fame like the wine in Lebanon. All of these things pointing to being the object of his affection. What does that look like? Describes one more thing there. I like this picture. He says that you'll return and dwell beneath my shadow. He'll back, back, be back under the covering of Almighty God. Isn't that sound a little bit more attractive than the descriptor that we saw in the severed relationship? Describes that. And I love this last statement. He says, I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Now, I'll admit I'm not a, a tree expert by any means, but I know a little bit about a cypress, right? A cypress is kind of a, known for having the really thick green uh, going up and all year round, it stays uh, especially green. But man, one of the things I really enjoy from a cypress is its fruit. Have you guys ever had a cypress fruit? No, you haven't ever had a cypress fruit because cypress trees don't have fruit. What I love about this description, get this for a second. God, in his attempt in connecting with his people, he's pouring out every possible description. He's even inventing new trees we haven't heard of. A cypress that bears fruit. It's green all year round and it's got awesome fruit and it all comes from me. He's trying to paint a picture going down every avenue possible for the visual learner to make sure it sinks in of what good comes from having a restored relationship with him. So those are the two pictures. Those are the two pictures that are painted. One, receiving your on, on pace to receive exactly what you deserve. The other is you're the, you're, you're the object of the affection of Almighty God. The thing that determines that, that's kind of the question here this morning. You saw the title of the, of the talk. What determines that? One is it comes down to a choice. Chapter 14, verse one, paints a picture. Choice number one is do absolutely nothing. You're on track. If you're independent of Jesus' finished work on the cross, you're on track to consistently go down the road of a severed relationship with God and be the object 
of his perfect wrath. The second option, chapter 14, read it with me. Verse one, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. Love that picture there. The reason why, if you actually unpack it, that's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, because you've sinned, because you've stumbled. You can't, you can't pass the buck. You can't say, I have excuses for my sin or my mistakes. It's only you that is stumbled. It's only you that is chosen to go your own way. Verse two, he says, take with you words. I love that description. He's like, don't show up before almighty God without figuring out what you're going to say to him. Have a game plan, in other words. What is it that you're going to say to God if you stand before him? What do you say? He tells us specifically, asking, say, take away all iniquity. And that's the starting point, is admitting your sin and saying, please, Lord, I throw myself at your mercy. Take it away from me. Take away my iniquity. And look at the second line. He says, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That takes a little bit of explanation. Think about the Old Testament. What was the system that was in place then? It was a sacrificial system that you made vows and you came before the Lord with a sacrifice of a bull as payment for your sin to deal with atoning for your sin. Now, on the other side of the cross, what is the, what is the sacrifice that we're leaning into? Jesus Christ, we're not, we're not, we're not cutting up bulls and, cut, and in the, the atrium here having any kind of sacrifices anymore. Instead, we're saying, I'm going to go before the Lord. Well, I'm going to go before him, and I'm going to go only on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross. You can replace it. It says, accept what is good, and we will pay with Jesus Christ the vow of our lips. We'll pay with his finished atoning work on the cross. Then look at the description there on the other side of that, on the other side of that choice and that decision, the new commitment saying, Assyria shall not save us. That's the same thing Assyria would be synonymous with saying the world, acknowledging, man, the world can't save us. There's nothing out there, not my own works. Because Assyria can't save us. We will not ride on horses. This is, an anti, is not an anti-horse verse. Basically, what Assyria was known for was all of their pleasures, their luxuries, and even their horses. So they're saying, hey, we're not going to count on them to save us, and we're not going to partake in the things that they partake in. Even we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In other words, we're going to lay down the different gods that we've until now elevated in our life. That's all part of the gospel. Coming before him, admitting and acknowledging your sin, throwing yourself solely on the sacrifice that he's made on your behalf, and then saying in this new lordship scenario, I'm done with counting on the things of this world. I'm solely depending on you for my rescue. This is the crossroads 
that every single person determines in their life. And the only way that an orphan finds mercy. So the question is for us, and you're like, yeah, I, I get it. I get where you're going with this. The question is, you have two potential pictures here. You can either continue in a severed relationship with God. Guess what you have to do for that one? Nothing. It's kind of like the, the, the lazy river. You're just there and you're just cruising down, bouncing between gods, and that's where you're headed off of a ledge. You don't have to do anything for that. But he says the alternate, the alternate option is to return to the Lord. The reason it says return is because you are designed to be in relationship with him. It's a coming back to what you were meant for. I love in verse nine, he concludes with this. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let, let, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The wise person will say, wait a second, I need to, I need to actually reflect on this. I need to consider this. This is, this is a pretty big deal because that descriptor of a severed relationship where I only receive the outcome of my deeds, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my family. I don't want that for really any. I don't want that for a coworker. I don't want that for anyone I've ever crossed paths with. So how does that impact us? How does that change us? couple things first off, just as we wrap up this series. The first one is the invitation to the person that's sitting in this room that can't ever think back to the point where they bent a knee and said, yes, I embrace what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Can't ever think back to that. If you can't think back to that, that that's a problem. That well, wait a second, when did I go from this path that everyone's headed on of a severed relationship to a restored relationship? I'm gonna carve out just a few moments for that person. And I like that the text says, make sure you come with words. Here this morning, the words that I would suggest that we do, I'm gonna give 10 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever it is for you to say these words, I am in. What we mean by that when I say I am in, that's saying I am in to embracing Jesus' finished work on the cross, his sacrifice for my sin, his payment, his resurrection, his new life. I'm in to submitting my life to him. I'm gonna carve out just a couple moments of quiet. And if that's a choice that you'd like to make this morning, my ask is for you to specifically stand and say those three words, I am in. We only do this maybe once a quarter at the church. It's not every week. It's not the option all, all the time. But I would suggest it's important as we get to this in scripture that we present the option to do that. So I'm going to be quiet. Those three words, if that's a choice you want to make this, mo this morning, standing and saying, I am in.
This past summer, we had a service where we had the opportunity to do this. And uh, there's a lady that afterwards, she was one of the ones that stood up and said, I'm in. And she said, she said, Pastor Scott, it was, it, it was like you're offering me a, a big bag of potato chips. Like, how could I say no to that? I was like, well, I guess that's one picture of the gospel, maybe for, for some of us. But here this morning, for some, anyone that's never made that choice to say, man, I embrace what Jesus did for me on the cross. If that's never been a line that you've crossed, one more moment just for someone to stand and say, I'm in. For the second group of people here in the room, this is another gift that our God offers, is the opportunity for restored relationship. Just because someone makes a prayer, makes a commitment, it's kind of like somebody that gives their, their wedding vows. And on that wedding day, that doesn't guarantee an awesome relationship. It, it takes work. It takes uh, behind the scenes. It takes restored relationship. It takes ongoing confession, admitting when stuff is wrong. Similarly, for those of us that have embraced Jesus Christ, he's not going anywhere. That's, that's a constant. He's not going anywhere, but we can have things in our life that gum up that relationship. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The, the patterns of sin, the patterns of us wandering. And here's the invite that's awesome for that person as well is confession is the opportunity to say, man, God, I don't, I don't want anything to be in the way of my love relationship with you. I'm gonna carve out a couple moments for us to kind of bow our heads and do some, some business with God as far as that relates as well. Like the, the, the quote that's saying that confession before God is the best dance you'll ever boogie to. Let's take a, a moment just to go before our Lord. Just tell him some things that maybe, and he, here's a moment. I, I don't want anyone in the room to not say something to God in these next few moments. Come with words. Come with something to say to him. God, I'm sorry. I've wandered. God, forgive me. God, or, or, or thank him. Thank him for his grace. I don't know what it is, but I want to give a few moments of quiet for you to say something to God. God, we thank you this morning for this lovely picture in the book of Hosea of your relentless affection for us. The extent and the measures that you go to pursue us is unbelievable. That the creator loves us that deeply. How do we praise you and you thank, we thank you for that. God, I pray for any person here in this room that's still kind of teetering on that decision, God, that you would make yourself irresistible in their mind, in their heart, God, that you'd continue pursuing them, drawing them to yourself. Thank you this morning for folks that have made commitments, for people that have made new, refreshed commitments before you. They want you to be the center of their life, the object of their affection. God, we thank you for your patience and grace and all of this. I thank you that the, the, the grace that washes over the believer is unbelievable. We, we're, we're dependent on that here today. And so now, just as we're wrapping up, we want to celebrate you through song because you're worthy of even that. We pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
love that line, I'm still in your hands, that's my confidence. And that is our confidence going into the week ahead, that he has never failed us, he's never going to. I pray that going ahead into the next couple days, you would cling to that tightly. If you've never made that choice, never embraced Jesus Christ, man, I would love to, after the service, get a chance to chat with you. We have a couple of volunteers here still available. If there's something specific we can be praying for, we'd be thrilled to serve you in that capacity. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.